So we're going to continue our worship with our scripture reading from Romans 6, verses 12 through 23. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from a death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under, we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either the sin which leads you to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God, that you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, to present, to now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the fr- free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. from Romans chapter 6 about how it's possible that those who have trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins obey sin rather than obeying righteousness. And Paul says, whatever you obey, you are a slave to that thing. And we we often quote Romans 6.23 When we're talking about the gospel, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's a good gospel verse. But what Paul is talking about there is that for believers, your obedience of faith leads to righteousness. So this morning, I'm going to talk about something that is a little bit different. You all know that I am very committed to preaching through books of the Bible. I believe that that magnifies the word of God in its entirety, I believe that is good for the health of the body of Christ to hear the whole word of God. But this morning, I am not going to begin my next series uh, because when I preach, I always lay a foundation. I read some books. I read the book that I'm preaching through several times, and I'm not ready to start that yet. So I'm a few weeks out. That said, I believe that God led through our morning prayer meeting last Wednesday for me to preach on this topic, and so I want to be faithful to follow that leading. Because of that, I am actually going to preach a message on the truth of justification and sanctification that we talked about in our catechism question. And I I want to be very careful in the beginning of this message, which is going to come from the book of Acts, 
to define those two terms. And so normally I go to the scriptures very early because I believe it's from the scriptures that the church grows. But today, before we go there, I believe that we need to understand these two terms. And I want to even argue that it is healthy and good for us to work to understand difficult terminology. That's a tough sell. Some people like to sound smart by using big words, and they are tremendously irritating people. And this can happen in church, too. I I listened to a pastor named Stuart Briscoe, who's an Englishman, and as an Englishman, he's got a great accent. He is enjoyable to listen to, even regardless of what he says. And he says some good things. And, and he was preaching a message at Moody Church a number of years ago. I was still in college. And, and he said this. He said, I find the practice of using a long word when a shorter one will do utterly reprehensible. And I think we kind of get his point, right? It's frustrating when people use larger words than seems necessary because the reason that we talk should be to clearly communicate with each other. And so if I use words that you don't understand or you use words that I don't understand, we are failing to meet the basic purpose of communication. It might even seem like I might be trying to make myself feel smart while I make you feel less smart. And we all know people who are proud and who use confusing terminology in ways that make them seem important. But what I want to ask you to do at the beginning of this message for just a moment, put yourself in this situation. Imagine for a second, your chest explodes in pain that shoots down your left arm and you collapse. You're rushed to the hospital for emergency surgery. And as the anesthesia wears off and you come round, your doctor walks in the room and he begins to tell you how he saved your life. And imagine if he said something like this. You have a fleshy lump in the left side of your chest that goes thump, 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 thump. And that lump has a bunch of little hoses that come off it, and it sloshes a liquid all over your body every time it thump thumps. And one of those very important little hoses got a little clogged. So I cut that little piece out, and I put another hose on that little hose with tiny little clamps so that the little patch won't wiggle off. How would that explanation make you feel? Would you feel confident about the medical care that you had received? You might wonder if the doctor thought that you were an idiot. Or alternatively, you might wonder if he was an idiot. In medicine, there is an enormous amount of specialized vocabulary. Because the body is enormously complex. And in order to speak accurately, doctors use words that have very precise meanings. 
So think back to my analogy for just a second. Each one of those little hoses that comes off your fleshy lump that goes thump, thump has a very precise name. And your doctor, when he talks to you, will probably use the technical name for each of those little hoses. And if he is a good doctor, he will strive to communicate clearly even though he is still using technical language. And do you know why it matters so much that doctors be precise with their language? Because life is at stake. If a surgeon is performing bypass surgery, it is imperative that the correct artery be cut and mended. You don't want to cut the wrong one. And precise language enables clear communication that helps a successful surgery. Why am I talking about this? Because in Christianity, we have an enormous amount of specialized vocabulary that can be confusing. There is a place for using very simple terms. I do not want to carry water for proud, arrogant people that make themselves seem intelligent by using words they probably don't understand. There is a place for using very simple terms. We should not make things more complicated than they need to be. But there is also a place for using precise language. Why? Because souls are at stake. Can you imagine a medical student who refused to learn anatomy terms because they were long and confusing? He'd never make it. He'd never make it out of med school. And I believe that we should also be willing to learn theological terms too. There is a place in the Christian life for reading difficult books and listening to technical teaching. Precise language lets us communicate carefully and accurately with each other. And precise language can help us understand what God has done for us, and it can help us know him better. Better knowledge of what God has done can lift a depressed soul and help it find grace. When you know what God has done for you, it will encourage your soul like medicine. If you are ignorant of what God has done, you will continue to battle discouragement and depression Even though God has done everything for you in Christ, if you are unaware of what he has done, it will not help your soul. Knowing God is the greatest joy that there is. And part of knowing him is growing in knowledge about him and what he has done. And so I want to argue this morning for the use of two technical terms. And I want to say that they are helpful and healthy And they will help you know God better. And my prayer for this morning is that we would better understand salvation. And I pray that if you are battling sin, that you will grow in holiness. And I pray that if you are discouraged, that you will enjoy new peace. I want an emotional result from a technical conversation this morning. I want all of us to enjoy God in a richer and a fuller way. And so don't be put off because I'm going to talk a little bit about some technical terminology. Lean in with me and my prayers that God will answer this prayer 
and we will love him more because we understand what he's done for us. So in today's catechism question, we heard two technical terms. Justification is one, it's more familiar. We use that outside of Christianity all the time. If you are on a diet and you desperately want to eat mint chocolate chip ice cream because it is 90 degrees and there is nothing that could be more refreshing, you will justify cheating on your diet. You may do this in a few different ways. You may choose to take the stairs instead of the elevator so that you work it off. Or you may, you, you may attempt to minimize what you've done. You might say, it's only a small bowl. It won't make a difference. Or if you're particularly evil, you'll point to something worse that someone else has done and say, even though I ate ice cream, at least I didn't eat as much as she did. Not going to talk about who that she might be. (laughs) In other words, we take a bad thing and either do a good thing to try to break even, like we're balancing a checkbook, or we take that bad thing and we try to make it seem less bad. We minimize it or we point out something worse that someone else has done. That is how we understand justification in in 21st century secular America. Biblical justification is totally different. I am not justified before God because I don't do bad things. That is not what causes me to be accepted before God. I do lots of bad things. And God is able to justify me anyway. And I am not justified Because I manage to break even and do enough good things to cover those bad things. I don't do nearly enough good things. And even if I could, it doesn't work that way. Good works will not wash away your bad works. Justification takes a sinner like me and it makes him good. In first service, I said it's like turning a bowl of ice cream into a nutritious pile of broccoli. Except here's the thing. I think it's actually a little different than that. Justification takes someone who has eaten a bowl of ice cream and it gives him health as if he had eaten something good. At first, that might sound immoral. If you know people that seem healthy while they eat garbage all the time, you will be righteously angry. We have to wrestle with the reality that God takes sinners who are sinners and makes them righteous. He takes something bad and he makes it good. At first glance, that seems enormously unfair. How can he do that and be righteous? Is he just playing favorites? Is he accepting some people and overlooking their sins? So as if they had never sinned? No. The Bible says God is not unjust. He is holy and pure. So how can a holy and pure God take sinners and make them righteous without being unfair? The Bible says we are justified or made righteous by the grace of God because Jesus was made sin for us. 
The Bible says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So Jesus never sinned, but he became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. What that teaches is that Jesus took your guilt and he took my guilt and God punished him for it as if he had committed the sins that you and I committed. Jesus never lied, but he was crucified for being a liar. Jesus never stole, but he was crucified for being a thief. Jesus never worshipped an idol. He never tried to advance his career over and above his devotion to God. But he was crucified for being an idolater. All of your sin and all of my sin, whatever it is, was placed on him. And all of his goodness, remember that verse says, he who knew no sin, he did not sin, he was good. All of his goodness is placed on you and placed on me when we trust in him by faith. That's why the Bible says that God is both just and the justifier of the ungodly. He is just because he never ignores sin. He never ignores the bad things that people do. No one gets away with sin. But because of his great love, he justifies ungodly people, sinners like me and you, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that God did this for you and me because he loves us. The scripture says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. That life comes as a result of believing, of agreeing that we are sinners deserving God's condemnation, but believing and trusting that Jesus took that condemnation for us. And we receive his life in the same way that he took our death upon himself. And in a moment, When we express that faith in Jesus, we are changed from being sinners in God's eyes to having the righteousness of Jesus. And this happens when we believe the truth of the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. The Bible says in Romans 4, 5, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The one who does not work, not trying to undo bad things. Rather, you are believing in the God who justifies the ungodly, who makes ungodly people good and righteous. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteous. His faith is considered to be righteousness, goodness, health. So when you recognize your sin and you realize that you are guilty before God, you can depend on him to save you. And the Bible says that when you depend on him, you are counted as righteous. That phrase, counted as righteous, is what we mean by the term justification. So if I were to give you a quiz, because we're working on technical language, don't, don't worry, there's not a quiz on the back of your bulletin. It would have been really funny if I'd done that, but I didn't do that. Next week. Next week there will be a quiz. No. (laughs) Just study. You'll be fine. No. If I were to ask you, what does justification mean? 
It means acquitted of guilt. You are not guilty. And it means counted as righteous. Acquitted of guilt, counted as righteous. So let me ask you very personally, because I said, I don't want this to just be academic. I want this to be very personal. Do you feel like a sinner today? Do you wake up and battle anxiety and depression? Have you believed in Jesus? Because if you have believed in Jesus, then you need to stop living in guilt and shame. God sees you as righteous, not because you are, you're not, but because Jesus is, and he is covering your sin. So I want to encourage your soul this morning to remember the love of God. It is so significant that the Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loves ungodly people who sin. Let me be clear that all of this is done because God loves you. Let me ask you, if you continue under a weight and a burden of guilt or sin, do you believe that your sin is somehow greater than Jesus Christ? Let me assure you today that it is not. Jesus is the infinite Savior. Nothing you do. This is an uncomfortable truth. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. We believe that God can forgive pedophiles and rapists and all kinds of horrible, horrible people because Jesus became sin for us. We love that truth when it's our sin. Sometimes it even offends us when it's a sin that we think is genuinely horrible. The Bible is so clear. We can rest in the forgiveness that comes from the love of God. So that's the first term. Justification. The second term is sanctification. And this is never used outside of Christian preaching and teaching. I, I have never heard of anyone trying to sanctify a bowl of ice cream. It, it doesn't even make sense. I, I don't even know what that would actually mean. When I thought about it and tried to get. I, it, some people call coconut milk and and some sort of artificial sweetener. That, that's not really ice cream. That's not, I, I can't even imagine that as sanctification. So what does it mean? It means God makes you holy. Sanctification means God makes you holy. It means that God is taking your selfishness and he is making you loving. It means that God is taking your grouchiness and he is making you patient. It means that he is taking your lust and making you honorable and pure, virtuous. It means that he is taking your greed and making you generous. It means that he is taking your self-pity and making you joyful. It means that he is taking your pride and making you humble. He is Changing a sinner into a saint. That is sanctification. It is not a quick or an easy procedure. But it is good and it is beautiful. It means that the Holy Spirit teaches you to deny your wrong desires that are so natural to your fallen nature. 
so that you begin to say no to wrong things that you would normally really enjoy and that you begin to say yes to good things that you would normally not enjoy. Think for a second about the illustration I began with this morning about why we should pay attention to theological language. After you have had a heart attack, okay, put yourself back in that room, you may have had emergency bypass surgery that saved your life. And a bad artery that is replaced by a healthy artery, that's maybe a little bit like justification. You had the problem taken out and something healthy put in. But sanctification is like the conversation you have with your doctor after the surgery where he says, okay, buster, you better learn how to eat right and start exercising. That is what sanctification is. And you know the crazy thing? When people change the way they eat, sometimes they begin to enjoy foods that are good for them. I I know... My mother has always intended that that I should learn that vegetables are actually not just good for me, but are enjoyable. And I have always wrestled with that. But the, the reality is, the crazy truth is, that you can love things that are good for you. You can begin to crave things that nourish you. But now there is something that is enormously important about sanctification that you could miss based on what I just said. Here's what I I want to make sure that no one misses this point. Sanctification depends on grace just like justification does. You cannot do this on your own. You cannot force yourself to grow in holiness. Just like we cannot justify ourselves, we cannot make ourselves holy through our own effort. We grow in holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I want to say a little bit more about how that works at the end of this message. But I want to say right now, That what changes is your heart and your desire. And it isn't an instant change. If you don't change at all, it may mean that you have not trusted in Christ. If you change under your own power and effort, you will become proud and insufferable. But if you look to Christ and are overwhelmed by his love, you will grow in holiness. And I illustrated it in Sunday school this way. I I don't want to make this about music, but let me say this. When I was in college, there was an artist that I really loved. She, She was a genius with lyrics. She could take a metaphor and weave it through a whole song in such a way that was just It was poetry, but at the same time, it was just great folk music. And not only was she a genius lyrically, she also was enormously innovative as a guitar player. And so there were two things that just drew me to her like a moth to flame. And I love this artist. Now, here's something strange that happened. I don't want to over-spiritualize this. I'm not going to say I grow closer to Jesus and I quit listening to that music. Actually, what happened was a little bit different than that. See, the the number one thing that she wrote about was she wrote a lot about her personal anxiety and angst over failed relationships. 
So she was very focused on wanting to be in a healthy, beautiful relationship. She wrote about her parents' relationship. She, she wrote about a lot of things. But she was very angry and discontent and broken. And I fell in love with my wife. And it wasn't that I stopped liking the way that she wrote or her skill or ability or her guitar playing. It was that I didn't want to listen to grumpy music about someone in a bad relationship when I was in a very good relationship that was very happy. My desires on the inside changed. And no one from the outside said, you know, you should stop listening to her. She's kind of crazy. In reality, from the inside, I enjoyed something good and beautiful and healthy and wholesome, and it led to an external change. Sanctification is like that. You taste something good, and so you stop craving things that are bad. And that happens because when you are justified, God gives you his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit teaches you to love good things. Now, I have preached for a long time and we have not gotten to our text. Don't worry. We will go through the text somewhat quickly. But this only matters if it is true biblically. And so I shared this Wednesday with our prayer group that meets at 8.30. What I had read that morning in Acts chapter 26. And... The reality is that the truths that I'm describing about being saved in a moment by being justified and being made holy over a period of time until you see Jesus, they are all over the New Testament. You can see this everywhere. And I want to show you where I saw it last Wednesday morning as I was reading my Bible before I came to church. So Acts chapter 26, verses 15 through 20, I want to demonstrate this is true in how Jesus talks about the gospel of Jesus. So read with me Acts chapter 26. I'm going to start actually in verse 14 that describes the vision that Paul is having. And, and Paul sees a bright light and he says, When we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes, so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul continuing says, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Now, I've entitled this message, The Point and Process of Salvation, because justification is a single point. Point. It is the point of no return where your guilt is acquitted and you are counted righteous. It happens in a moment. Sanctification is the process and it is an ongoing process. And both of those are described as salvation in the Bible. 
So sometimes when salvation is used, it's talking about justification. And those are the verses that we point to when we say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And sometimes it's talking about being made holy. And so Christians who have already believed are urged to look to the day of Christ Jesus and salvation is future. How is future both, how is salvation both past and future? Because the Bible is talking about two different realities. One of them is that your sins are forgiven, but the other one is that part of your salvation is being made holy, being made like Jesus Christ. And some people make the mistake of only focusing on one thing and never striving for holiness. And if that's you this morning, there's a good chance that you don't know the Lord. Biblical salvation always leads to holiness. If you are looking to Jesus Christ to try to cover your sins while you remain in them, that's what Paul was saying in Romans 6. Remember our scripture reading this morning? Shall we continue in sin since we are under grace? By no means. If you are a slave to sin, you are being led to death. But if you are a slave to righteousness, you are being led to eternal life. That's why salvation is talked about in different ways throughout the scriptures. Sometimes we're looking at justification. That's Romans 4. Sometimes we're looking at sanctification. That's Romans 6 and Romans 7, where Paul is saying, if you have been justified, then you will obey. And if you do not obey, do not think that you have been justified. So where is this in the book of Acts? I've got four points, and it'll take me probably four minutes to cover each of them. Two of them deal with that point, the justification, the point of no return. Two of them deal with the process. So notice with me first, the point, turning. When Jesus describes the message that Paul is going to preach, he says this. He says, verse 18, I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. There is a turning when you come to Christ. You do not continue to love the things that God says are sinful. You should not look like your non-Christian neighbors and friends because you have turned from the sins of your culture and the sins that are naturally part of you. You have turned from darkness to light. And it's a good and a beautiful and a sweet thing. There is not a hint of God threatening you here. There is a God who loves you, who is calling you to a salvation because your sin will lead to his wrath if you do not forsake it. And so Jesus is calling Paul to preach this message that includes the point of turning. Secondly, and you see this also in verse 18, that turning leads to the forgiveness of sin. So these are both justification. You turn from your sins and receive grace. You repent and say, I am the ungodly person that deserves wrath. And in that repenting, in that turning, because of faith in Jesus Christ, you receive the forgiveness of sins. Jesus says it this way, they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That faith in me is describing why you can be forgiven for your sins, because you have faith that Jesus died for them and paid for them. And that faith in Jesus Christ is also 
what sanctifies you. It is also the process that makes you holy. So we've seen two points. The turning, the repentance is part of the justification. Having your eyes opened to the light, to the beauty of God, and to the danger of sin causes you to repent, to say, I recognize I was wrong. So you turn, you receive forgiveness. That's justification. But then the process, you can see in verse 18, when Jesus says that they, are, they receive a place among those who are sanctified, those who are made holy. It's not just that your sins are forgiven, it's that you're included among the people who are gradually being made righteous. You are righteous and you are being made righteous so that your soul and your life matches what God has done for you in Christ. So the process is you receive that place and then secondly, you perform deeds in keeping with repentance. So, so go down with me to verse 20, where Paul is describing how he was obedient to this call of God on his life. He does preach the message all over the world. And what is the message? That all men should repent and turn to God. And not just that they should repent and say, I'm sorry but that they should perform deeds in keeping with their repentance. As you receive the love of God, that changes your life so that you begin to obey. Hebrews 10.14 puts it this way, For by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We are already made perfect because of Jesus, and yet we are being perfected, As we continue to look to him in faith, both of those things are done in faith. And so as I close this morning, what do we do? What do we do as a result of these two truths that our salvation is so rich? Well, there are a couple of things. I said, if you're discouraged this morning, I want you to remember that God loves you and sent his son to die for you. I want you to know that there is grace that is greater than all of your sin. And I want you to remember that the God that loved you while you were yet a sinner still loves you as you continue to battle with sin. But secondly, I want to remind all of us that God saved us so that we would be like his son, so that we would grow in holiness. And if you're wondering How do we grow in holiness without falling back into the old trap of thinking that we can please God with our own effort? How do you do that? Jesus is the key. He is always the key. And I want to give you a couple of things that I think make that very clear. And then this Wednesday, we are going to be spending time praying about this truth. And we'll talk about it a little bit more on Wednesday night. Number one, it almost sounds cliche, but the word of God is is one of the ways, in fact, I would even say the primary way that we grow in sanctification, that we grow in holiness. 1 Peter 2.2 says this, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter says, if you've been born again, you ought to grow. You are immature. You are a baby. You should not remain a baby. And if you're going to grow, you need pure spiritual milk. What is that pure spiritual milk? The scripture makes it clear. It's the basic truths of the word of God. It's where you start. It's the gospel. And it's the beginning of teaching about obedience. Peter says you should grow by receiving that. One of the ways that I know that God is at work in my life is that I actually enjoy listening to preaching. That is not normal. 
Even for some of you who are Christians, you may feel like that's really weird. And it is kind of weird. But I am hungry for God to teach me how I can grow in holiness. And I'm going to be real honest. I'm not hungry for that all the time. There are times in my life where I push away and I push against that. But gradually, the more that I receive, the more that I want. And that's what the Bible says should happen. The writer of Hebrews builds on the analogy that Peter gave. Peter says, as newborn babes desire pure spiritual milk, the writer of Hebrews says, you need to move beyond milk and grow to the meat of the word. You should move beyond the basics. You should not be so proud as to think that people are making the faith too complicated when they use big words. There are people who are arrogant and deliberately confusing and try to make themselves seem important. I'm not talking about that. Don't let someone else's sin keep you from obeying what the, God, the word of God says that you need to do. You need to grow in your understanding of the word of God. And so when I say that the word helps you spiritually, that's just exactly what the Bible says about itself. James says, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So you have to receive it. That's one of the first steps. You receive it by listening to preaching. You receive it by reading it daily by yourself and in groups. And once a week is not going to be enough to help you grow. Paul, in writing to a young pastor, said this. He said, keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. That is a stunning statement. Because as believers in justification by faith, we like to think we're already saved. Why is he telling a pastor and his entire church that if they don't persist in the ministry of teaching the word of God, that they are in danger because the ministry of the word helps you grow in holiness. It helps you assess whether or not you really have believed. And so Paul says, be dedicated to the word of God. Let me be clear. It's not a magic book. Why does it do that? Because it points to Jesus Christ. You see Jesus more clearly as you know the word of God better and better. And so your faith in Christ grows as you are immersed in the word and the Holy Spirit points to Jesus using the word of God. It's in the word that we understand the commands that Jesus gave us and we see Jesus more clearly and then those commands become a joy. Your tastes change. You start to enjoy things that you wouldn't have enjoyed before Christ. Secondly, and I'll just mention these briefly, singing helps you grow spiritually. Paul says in both Ephesians and Colossians that we should use psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making music in our hearts to the Lord. That is both individual and it's corporate. And then prayer. The writer of 1 John, the Apostle John says, if you see a brother in sin, you pray for him. And you pray in the Holy Spirit as you are seeking to to. Grow in Christ. Paul, writing in Ephesians, describes the, the battle of putting on the armor of God. And at the end of that, he says, pray always in the Holy Spirit. Understand that you are in a war for your soul, that Satan does not want you to be holy. He wants to stunt your growth. And so you pray in the Holy Spirit as you seek to obey and love the Lord. And you pray for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ as it looks like maybe, maybe they get tripped up. Or you celebrate their victory. So prayer helps you grow. Communion. 
we look to Christ when we remember his body and blood. These are the things that change your heart from the inside so that you're not following a list of rules on the outside, but you begin to love the things that lead you to God, that lead you to holiness, so that you are ready to look Jesus in the eye one day with incredible joy. And you're no longer ashamed because of the things that are part of your life, but gradually by faith you have grown to a place of holiness where you can look Jesus in the eye and be excited that he is returning. C.S. Lewis said that, God is easy to please and impossible to satisfy. Easy to please, impossible to satisfy. Easy to please because as you are learning to obey, he delights in you and your obedience. Impossible to satisfy because until you see Jesus, you will not be perfect. You are justified. You are being sanctified. And so as I close now, I want to make it very clear. We are pointing to Jesus, both to be saved and to be made holy. Jesus is always the light for sinners. He is the light that leads to forgiveness. And he is the one who sends his spirit so that we love him. We are able to do these things because the Holy Spirit changes our hearts so that we love them. And this morning, if you struggle to love the things that make you godly, I would urge you to call out to God in desperation, to ask for help, to confess sins of a lack of love, to confess sins of disobedience, and to ask the Lord, if you have looked to Jesus to save you, ask him to lead you in holiness, to sanctify you, and pray that God would help you grow. And I know that he will. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you delight in us as we look to Christ. And I pray that you would help us to look to Jesus. Let us know your love and be assured of your love. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.